0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast.
1: Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds.
0: This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of the largest and oldest wrestling family on the planet. The Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The stud has arrived. Old school or new fan. The Stud is here. Please welcome your Studcast host of television and radio fame, Tony Basilio.
2: What an absolute blessing and honor it is, ladies and gentlemen, to be with you for another voyage. On this magical trip back in time, we call the Studcast with the great Ron Fuller. And yes, I am Tony Basilio. And yes, today, we continue to go through and look further into 93 years and four generations. The story of the Welch-Fuller family, it is in the blood. This is show number eight, and that is hard for me to believe. And Stud, as I welcome you in, the response that we're getting from people is flat out phenomenal my friend phenomenal welcome to another Studcast.
1: thank you very much tony i'm so glad to be here i'm amazed and i'm humbled by it it's tremendous i've just been invited on more programs than i'm able to do i seem to have become some type of guru a historian when it comes to wrestling professional wrestling and i didn't go into this ever thinking and that, that would be the case i thought the stories which everyone, the compliments that I receive from Facebook, from all different forms, Instagram, uh, Twitter, all the different social medias, is just, it's unbelievable. And I'm so humbled by it. I want people to know out there that send me these comments. Sometimes I can't talk to everybody. I can't return the comments. I can't say anything to them. And I'm sorry for that because there's just so many of them. But it's just been tremendous so far. It's been a heck of a ride. You know, like jumping on the old horse every time we get on board. And we're off again today, and it's just, not only do I have the fans to thank, but I have so many, so many great podcasters to thank. Uh, Jim Cornette, uh, Brian Lass with the 605, Austin Idol. It's just, it's amazing. The small companies, I'm doing these podcasters that are small because, heck, I consider myself to be small, and, uh, you know, I I want to work with as many people as I can. I want to get my story out there as much as I can. I think we're finding, or I am certainly finding, that what's in my head is really, really of great need, and there's a lot of people out there that want to know about the history, not just my family, but the history of the sport itself, and that's where I really want to that's where I want to stick today. I'd like to do a, quite a bit of stuff in that area today, as a matter of fact. And just thanks to everyone. Very briefly, thanks to everyone. All the, all the, the great stars of the past that are podcasters and asking me to do your programs. It's just been phenomenal. I really, really appreciate everyone's feelings toward what we're doing here.
2: And a new website as well, Stud, since the last time we visited here. A new website is now up and running here for a couple weeks. Share the new address and all that stuff.
1: All right. It's Tennessee. It's Tennessee, but it's the the, uh, abbreviation for Tennessee. If you're mailing somebody to the state of Tennessee, it's tnstud.com. It's pretty simple, short and simple. So tnstud.com. You're going to get to the website. Website is It's where it all emanates from. You can pick up the stud cast there. I had great people working on my uh, website, and it's really, really nice. I think it's well put together. I get a lot of compliments on the website as well. And uh, just uh, very thankful to have run across these people. Please contact me. Take a look at that site there are things on it that will come soon uh the stud store for instance is about to open could open any day now that takes a while to get set up i apologize to people for that it takes a while to get that set up because of the way we we all use credit cards this day and time that's why we've been a hold up on the on the stud store opening well i think we have a good website now and i feel comfortable with it and then can our servers are doing well handling great tremendous traffic and we're getting a lot of traffic it seems to be we're becoming fast becoming one of the biggest wrestling podcasts in the world and i hope that we can continue on the path we're on
2: rather quickly and again thanks to great brian last jim Cornette, and so many talented people who have taken ron's work here and have said hey we're going to support you which is a really great thing which is a real tribute to you to tribute to you and your family and I know that one of the things you want to do today, we had talked about this, you had mentioned it on our open, is go back into some deep history here. And this is a place that truly only you can go, because this is a story, as we said at the outset, this is a story that till now has not been told. But you have a couple things that you want to enter about your great, great, great and your great, great, great granddad. So why don't we start there on episode eight here on the Studcast.
1: well I, I've done a lot of thinking here since we've been at this for a little while and I, I probably should have started back further than I really started and my great 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 grandfather was a full-blooded Indian he was his name was John Welch and he was a true to be a, a wealthy person and uh, and did very well for himself especially being an American Indian He went off to California at an early age and ended up owning 17 miles of railroad. I don't know exactly how that came about, but he finally, at his death, my great-great-grandfather whose name was Ed Welch, this is Roy's father, he inherited that 17 miles of railroad in California. Ed was a very, very lone person. He wanted to stay by himself all the time. He found out that he was, had inherited something that was worth a considerable amount of money, no doubt. And he, instead of going out there and getting it, he didn't want to leave Oklahoma to go there. So finally, a friend of his said, Ed, I will take you by wagon. This is the way they're going to take a wagon, a Conestoga to California and make a claim on this 17 miles of railroad. Now, I don't know this friend's name of his that offered him this opportunity, but they got into the wagon And Roy told me this story. He says that they went through the desert from Oklahoma. They went south and through the desert and into Arizona. I assume the railroad is somewhere in the Los Angeles area. And he said that they got halfway there and the guy went to sleep, camped out, had a campfire, camped out one night and woke up the next morning and. Ed was gone. Ed went back to Oklahoma. He changed his mind about going and accepting this 17-mile railroad in California that his dad had intended for him to have. Obviously, family didn't end up with any railroad. Ed didn't end up with any railroad either. But Ed went home and Ed was a, he, It's a, he, explaining Ed is a little bit like explaining Roy, and, and when I have only one story I'd like to tell about Ed. Well, that's actually two, but the first story is about Ed that he had a daughter named Bonnie, who was Roy Welch's sister. And uh, Bonnie had a husband named Virgil. They lived in Dyersburg, Tennessee, where a lot of the family lived after Roy set everybody up and they were all into the wrestling business. And Virgil was keeping Ed. They had gone to Oklahoma and brought Ed from Oklahoma to Tennessee because he was in poor health. And Virgil had some rats in his home and out back of his house he had an old shed and in the bottom but below the floor of the shed he felt there was a bed of rats there because he thought that's where the rats were that were coming to get into his house so he goes and gets Ed and he says let's go out here and get yourself a stick with me and we're gonna turn over the bottom of this shed I think there's some rats under there and we can kill a couple of these rats so Ed says, I don't need no stick. Virgil just goes on outside. He finds himself a little stick. It's actually a probably a, a pretty big stick. And he looks around, and Ed's got no stick. He gets, tells him again, he's you know, Ed, you need to grab your stick. We're going to hit a couple of these rats. And he says, I don't need no stick. So they go out to the deal. They pick up the bottom of the shed. They're just the board is left there, and obviously there's a lot of rats underneath there. So one takes off and runs toward Virgil's house. Virgil tells me this story. So Virgil says he's hitting at the rat, and he's the rat's running sideways in one direction another. He's missing, 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 and the rat runs underneath his house. He didn't get any rats. And he turns around and he looks, and Ed has a double handful of rats. He just reached in there and grabbed as many rats as he could with his hands, and he's holding them, and the rats are biting him on the hands. And his hands are bleeding. The Damn. rats are just furiously eating at him. And he takes one at a time. He, he gets one of them skull between his finger and his thumb. And he smashes his skull until it breaks, until he kills him. And then he just, that rat hangs from his hand. He gets another one. And he kills two handfuls of rats while they're biting him. And never, never screams out says he was right. He didn't need a stick. Virgil said he killed a dozen rats and I couldn't kill a one because he was much more a man than I was. Well, that was just, I mean, that's a pretty wicked story, but it tells you about the toughness of Roy's dad. And I can imagine his dad before him, who was a full-blooded Indian. John Welch was full-blooded Indian. So that's an idea of where we come from. on this same trip, from Oklahoma, he's there. How about he you? You afraid of rats? Oklahoma. Before
2: you get in that second story, what about you with rats? You gonna pick a I, rat up?
1: You see a rat? I'm not going to pick up a. Rat. Okay, just checking. No, sir, I'm all not right, going to right. let one rat. Have all right. Any opportunity to bite me in any way whatsoever you come I heard you the co- story i heard the story and i had chills up my spine it was like are you kidding how we how can a man do that i cringe a little bit to tell the story but i feel there that i need to back up just a little bit and let people know i've already told how roy was left in the prairie for for three months by himself as a nine-year-old boy this tells you what his daddy was like and how his thought processes run and so ed then he's 70 years old and they have him in tennessee and he's sick and he's dying and he says i want to go home to oklahoma and they say no no dad you know we got you here and we can take care of you and there's a bunch of family members they give him a 100 reasons why he doesn't need to go home And he, one morning they get up, he's living with one of them at that time, and he's gone. They can't find him, and he walks from Dyersburg, Tennessee, somehow crosses the Mississippi River, don't know how he gets that done, and walks to Oklahoma from Tennessee at 70 years old. Just a rugged tough son of a gun, and that's about where I want to go with that. I can't go into any much more about him because some of the things that concern him and my great-great-great-grandfather are just about Untellable in today's time.
2: Well, you can share one of the untellable stories. I mean, come on,
1: just one. Yeah, well, I, you know, I want well, to tell you, we went and looked for him. This was probably 10 years after he walked back to Oklahoma. Nobody knew where he lived, and, and Roy tried to track him down. We took a trip to Henrietta, Texas, because we had family members there. And Roy says, let's go to Oklahoma and find Ed. He's talking to my grandmother, and my brother and I, Rob, we're in the car. So we're on the trip and we find him in a shack on the side of the road it took us two days we spent a night in a hotel just trying to track him down the next day we thought we had the area where he was and we find him in a old fireworks shack on the side of the road somewhere in oklahoma i'm a big kid i'm i'm like eight years old i don't remember where we were in oklahoma but i know we were in some flat land it was certainly a different country than what i was accustomed to and we find him in this fireworks shack there's no floor in it it's got dirt floors it's a cot that he sleeps on he's got no stove he has no vent no windows in the building the building's probably 10 by 10 and i remember as a kid walking to the door and looking in the door and thinking gosh almighty how can anybody live like this and he was perfectly happy roy begged him to come home get in the car and let us take you to tennessee and he uh, being a man of a few words says don't want to go to tennessee so we left him there in the middle of oklahoma this was in 19 19- Probably 1950, might be maybe 1955, something like that, and drove home. I never saw Ed again. I don't know that any of them ever saw Ed again. It was a tough life. He lived a very rugged and tough life, and he was happy with that. It was what he had been, the way I guess he had grown up in a much tougher time frame. And it was difficult for everybody back in those days, but it surely seemed to be difficult for my family members.
2: And it really gives you a glimpse of who these people were that were the trailblazers in the sport of wrestling and just how hard headed you had to be, how tough, you know, that whole picture of the rugged individualist. It helps really paint the picture of who these people were, who your grandfather was to come from that stock.
1: Yeah, that's why I wanted to do it. I, I, kind, of, I kind of felt bad that I had left Ed out and John Welch out. And I just want to let people know we're a rare breed and I'm a heck of a lot different. Obviously, four, five, six generations down from that, I'm a totally different person than my dad was. and My grandfather we get a little softer all the time. But maybe that's a good thing. Obviously, it's a good thing because I'm not going to pick up any rats like we're talking about. I'm not going to grab a handful of rats, I can tell you that.
2: That's classic stuff right there. So let's jump ahead. You were saying that when they leave them, you're in the 50s there in Oklahoma And when Ed has left, set the scene for me, because in our narrative, we're around the mid 50s or somewhere in that scene, mid to late 50s. And so who are some of the wrestlers that are out there right now and where are all the wrestlers in the late 50s? If you can, just give me an overview.
1: Okay, that's good. That's good. Let's talk a little bit about just the family, because now we're in the really the late 50s. We're close to leaving the Gulf Coast and the first business that my dad established and going on to Memphis, which is the second place we'll get into Memphis soon. But we're we're in the, along the Gulf Coast there. And and I want to just give you a general idea of where everybody's at. Roy's obviously office now is in Nashville. He is huge. He's, he's, he's become a, a magnet in the, in the wrestling industry. He's one of the very largest. He has 12 states. He's operating businesses from New Orleans, north to Louisville, Kentucky, and Far East is into the Carolinas, and the edge of Carolina. He's operating a massive territory and has an office full of people. Has private secretaries, two private secretaries. His partner is Nick Gulas, who has two private secretaries and an office full basically of people that it takes to run a company of that size. Then at the same time, Roy's running home two or three days a week to Yorkville, Tennessee, where his dairy is, and trying to build a dairy that will become one of the largest in the history of the South. So roy's roy's got his act together and he is doing what roy did he is all work he is all focus. he is all bad as he needs to be to make things happen and getting job done dad lester the fields brothers are all now congregated along the gulf coast mobile alabama and pensacola and they are they're all doing well they're young guys they're gung-ho they've got big futures ahead of them and dad has got his operation going he's running everything from tallahassee west to new orleans and all along the gulf coast every major city along the gulf coast he's he's operating business and those areas above him are operated by someone else in the family so the family's becoming solidified in the sport, and they are learning the sport at this point, and they are going to expand, and they're gonna be very prolific at it, obviously. Bill Golden, Jimmy Golden's father, that's my dad's sister's husband, He is now running in northern Alabama, Sheffield, Florence, Huntsville, Alabama, a series of towns across the northern part of Alabama. His talent comes out of Nashville. He pays a 10% booking fee like other people that deal with Roy at this time, and his business is very good. Me, Rob, and Jimmy, we're just little boys. But in the summertime, we're together almost the entire summer. Jimmy comes and lives on the farm with us in Loxley, Alabama, and we're crazy kids. We don't have enough to do. We've got to figure out things to do. We've got watermelons. We grow watermelons on this farm and they bring in five tractor trailers a day and ship truckloads of watermelons to Detroit, Michigan out of this farm. And we are picking up the watermelons and loading the trucks. but like young boys do, we get sometimes off on a tangent and we start throwing watermelons underneath the tires of the truck. So when that truck gets full and it gets heavy and that it can't go anywhere, you can hear that guy trying to drive it goes, what's going on back there, you know? And we've done about five watermelons underneath the the wheels, and the back, and, you know, we're just doing crazy things like uh, kids always do. In fact, my dad got to where he would pay us, and he said, I'm going to give you guys, since you all working, you know, he made us work. He never let us play much, so that's why we we're doing goofy things. Like, when we were at work. We work, that's the only way we could find time to play is we figured out a way to play while we we're doing work, but he says, I'm going to give you guys 25 cents a day for working for me. So we said, this is great, man. So Rob and Jimmy would take their money every Friday and he would pay them in cash. It would be like a dollar twenty five in cash. And I would say, no, dad, hang on to mine. I'm waiting for the end of the summer so I can get me a big check and I can buy me something special. So we worked through the entire summer. Jimmy's ready to go home and i finally go in and i say okay dad i said write me my check i had my days here i've got seven weeks whatever it was and here's my total the total was i don't remember it was maybe 10 12 14 dollars it was to me a kid that was big money i was only eight years old nine years old and he writes me the check and we have a lake in front of our house and we swim in that lake every day so We go, I get my check, I stick it in my back pocket, and we go down to the house, and I forget it's in there, and we all just bust out into the lake with our clothes on, and I lose my check. So I go to my dad, realizing that, you know, it's a check. You know, he can write me another one. And I say, Dad, I lost my check, you know, and can you write me another one? And he says... What did you do, son? I said, I lost my check that you wrote me for the summer's work. And he said, well, what do you want me to do? I said, well, can't you write me another check, just replace the check? And he goes, no, I can't. And I said, what do you mean you can't? And he says, I can't do it because I think I'd be doing you a disservice. He says, I think you need to realize how important it is to take care of your money, son, and he says, I don't believe I can write you a check for your summer's work. You know, I appreciate how hard you worked this summer, but I think you're gonna get more out of this lesson than you would if I gave you the money back. That's horrible, man. But you learned your <laughs> lesson, didn't you? I never lost another check in my life. It was good enough that I never, I never stuck my money somewhere that it was not gonna come back to me and be in my pocket in one way or another. So it was a good lesson. But it was how we were treated and how we were trained. And it was a good lesson for me. I think in the long run, when I think back about that time, I think, you know, what a horrible thing. But at the same time, I think, you know, my dad was pretty sharp. He really had a way of of impressing me about how much your work is worth and how do you get paid for it and how you keep it. So in that late 50s time
2: period, Ron, how many Fuller from the Fuller-Welch clan, because you guys are just kids, that next generation that that really people came to know and love as we saw more of this on television. But how many from that clan was active in wrestling at that point? You'd mentioned Bill Golden before. You'd mentioned your father, your uncle. Who else is active at that point?
1: You've got Herb. I didn't mention Herb in this little little rundown I just did. Herb is the world's junior heavyweight champion for five years nobody beats him he's unbeatable he's traveling he's not staying at home in tennessee He's on the road, he's wrestling all over the world, making a name for the Welch family outside of where we normally went. When you own a territory of your own, and I found this out when I started building my own, you don't go and wrestle for other people anymore because you own your own business and you're you're responsible for your business doing well. And usually, you if you're good, you're the, you're the star. You're one of the stars. When you leave, you cost yourself money, so you don't leave. So Herb is out there doing his own thing as the world junior heavyweight champion, and he has a car wreck, and they take the title because he's so injured and he's so so messed up for a while that he can't wrestle. So they remove the title from him because he can't defend it, and he comes back when he gets well and wins it again. So Herb is a phenomenal wrestler. Roy is still here. You've got the Fields boys, the three Fields boys, Bobby, Lee, and Don. And they're doing well. They're wrestling for dead in the Mobile area and doing well along the Gulf Coast. They're operating into Louisiana. They're making these long trips here and there. Bill Golden, you've got periphery on the periphery of my dad's, my mother's sister marries a guy named Ewan McClure. And my dad makes a promoter out of him and puts him into Mississippi to run towns throughout Mississippi for Dad. So there are, there's another guy that's a family, not a family member, but a close personal friend of all the family named Rocky Maguire, who becomes a big-time figure in Gulf Coast wrestling once we leave the Gulf Coast and go to Memphis. Rocky Maguire handles business for the Fields Brothers in the eastern side of Memphis. Gulf Coast wrestling of their territory becomes a fixture for wrestling down there along the Gulf Coast. So there are just people. Now we not just have family members, we have son-in-laws and brother-in-laws and that type of people that are being placed in different parts of the country, taught the trade, helping Roy to keep cohesively keep this huge geographic area together. Stud, it's
2: hard to believe we're already almost at the midway point, but one other thing. Let's get in here real quick. On the Gulf Coast right now, who's currently there? You were talking about the, the huge territory that your grandfather had had, the 12-state territory. Who are some of the guys in there with uh, Goulas and Welch at that point in time?
1: Well, Gulis and Welch, they've got, they've got great wrestlers, obviously, and they have as many as probably 60, maybe 70 wrestlers. They have... They have probably more wrestlers than what Vince has with WWE now. Just a tremendous group of wrestlers, and they come from all over the country, all over the world. That Because of the the success they're all having, it's late 50s, uh, television has really pumped the industry big time. It's just booming everywhere, and they have a great flow of talent. But I know more about the Gulf Coast because I'm a young guy, I'm a kid, actually, but I'm watching TV every week. So I know that in in the Gulf Coast area, you've got Joe Scarpa as an example. Now, Joe Scarpa, people are going to go, who is Joe Scarpa? Well, if you're from the Northeast and you know a guy by the name of Jay Strongbow, Chief Jay Strongbow, that's Joe Scarpa. And Joe Scarpa is a young guy just getting started in the business, great body, great attitude, great athlete. Because I spent a lot of time with him when I was a junior in high school. We used to play ball together, basketball together, football, the guy was a tremendous athlete. So you got Joe Scarpa. You've got Ray Stevens, one of the biggest names of all time, who leaves there and goes to San Francisco for Roy Shires, becomes a huge star in the West in California. And he developed his skills for dad right there in that Gulf Coast territory. You have a guy named Joe McCarthy that came out of Dyersburg, Tennessee, developing his skills there. He's going to leave there and he's going to go wrestle for Leroy McGurk in Oklahoma. He's going to become one of Danny Hodge's favorite wrestlers to wrestle against because Danny says, every time he got in the ring with Joe McCarthy, he knew somewhere in the night, Joe McCarthy's going to try him. He's going to try to pin him. He's going to hook him. He's going to do whatever he could do. Danny says, I love that guy. They had tag teams that were coming along in the south down there. One was uh, called the Interns. They had a manager named Ken Ramey, big star back in those days. And Dick Dunn, Dick Dunn was born along the Gulf Coast there, became a huge star, not just in the Gulf Coast, worldwide. I wrestled him in Australia in 1960. He just went everywhere, great star. Don and Jackie Fargo, the two Fargos, the other brothers are at it, and they are becoming monster stars. They're going to leave there and go to Roy in Nashville and light light up six states. People will still talk about those two guys. Yvonne Robert, he was from Canada, great athlete, goes home to Montreal and sets Canada on fire. There was so many of these guys, Charlie Carr, that taught me to wrestle, taught my dad to wrestle, he's there wrestling for dad. Baby Blimp that we have talked about before, that Roy used to try to have his bear eat up every time he could get a chance to, just a killer Carl Kowalski, one of the big names in the sport, is in that territory at that time, young guy, goes to the northeast and becomes a monster star along the eastern coast. Eastern Seaboard, it's just, it's ridden with talent, young guys all digging and and grinding. The matches they had were just phenomenal because they're all in shape and they're all rugged and they're all shooter background. They all know how to wrestle. Not, Not like today's time where they don't know how to wrestle. They all knew how to wrestle and they took that ability and turned it into action in the ring that can't be duplicated anymore. It's just not touched anymore because it's just a lost art.
2: Uh, it's beyond it's the lost beyond art. And, and hearing you talk about those names and, wow, it just takes you back. Let's do this. And let's pause for the cause here. Let's hear the dulcet tones of the great David Summers. We'll let him tell you about it as another stud cast is halfway home and we come back. We'll get to your questions, your comments, and you will take center stage and you will be in the main event with the Tennessee Stud when we continue on the other side on this StudCast right after this. The
0: StudCast continues in one minute after these important StudCast offers. It's finally here. It's the official opening of the Stud Store. Take a ride now through the Stud Store at tnstud.com. Four great photos are available with more to come. 8 by 10 glossy photos, including shipping, handling, and personally autographed to you by the Tennessee Stud himself. And coming soon, the first in a series of original t-shirts that will all be a must-have item for StudCast fans. StudCast koozies, buttons, and a vintage DVD of Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud, containing matches and interviews from his historic career. Also coming soon, due to the tremendous demand, the first CD in the StudCast historical collection each cd will contain five stud casts, plus a brand new highlight episode and an exclusive thank you from the stud himself these cds will contain over five hours of stud stories and are perfect for friends older family members that can't access the internet and someone like you shop tnstud.com to own your own piece of wrestling history today that's tnstud.com you are back seated ringside on this edition of the ron fuller studcast
2: and we're back on this edition of the ron fuller studcast boy that david summers has an incredible voice does an incredible job and you know we could not do what we're doing here without folks like david summers without you out there wherever you go wherever you talk about old school wrestling whether it's with your friends whether it's among your family wherever it is on the internet we're not doing this without you spreading the word and without you helping us grow. And it's indicative in the types of questions that we're getting here. Here we're in Studcast 8, so we're less than two months old, Stud. And I look up, and we have a question here. As we get into some of our questions, we've got a question here from Johnny Jones, who's in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, And he wants to know, you've wrestled some of the greatest. He says, I know that your grandfather wrestled a bear because you talked about that in past stud cast. Did you ever wrestle a bear? Johnny Jones of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania.
1: Great question, great question. Especially after, you know, everybody knowing about Roy and what he did with a bear. I wrestled a bear one time in one match and I'll briefly tell you about it. It was in, of all places, a little town called Morristown, Tennessee. It was a tag match. What happened is my dad was visiting, and he said, you know, I want to wrestle. And I said, okay, I'll book you in Marstown and we'll wrestle a tag match. And we wrestled a tag match against Ron and Don Wright, the Wright brothers. And the bear was on that card, and there was nobody booked to wrestle the bear. So I talked to Dad. And I said, let's just go out there, let, let me have the guy announcer announce that whoever loses the match, that tag team has to wrestle the bear. So he said, that's cool. Let's do it. You know, so I sent the guy out and I said, to, ladies and gentlemen, we don't have anybody booked against the bear. So what we're going to do is whoever loses the night's tag team match is going to wrestle the bear immediately following it. So we beat Ron and Don. And they, uh, as as to be expected, it comes out and Ron goes, I ain't getting in the ring with no bear. You know, he goes, that bear will eat me, you know. And so they refused basically to wrestle the bear. So dad says, well, let's go out and wrestle the bear. Dad had trained the bear himself, so he knew something about wrestling the bear. I'd never wrestled the bear. So I said, okay, let's go. We'll go out and wrestle the bear. So we get in the ring, the bear's in the ring, and uh, dad says, let me start. And I said, no, 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 let me start. You know, I said, I, you know, I, I, I've always wanted to try this. Let me start. And he goes, okay. So the bear, I'm in the ring. Dad gets out in the apron and, and the bear stands up on his hind feet ready to to do what the bear does. You know, he's expecting you to come in and give him an opportunity to do something to you. And instead, I barrel across the ring. I hit him about chest high with a tackle. He goes down on his back, and I'm on top of him. The bear, I'm trying to beat the bear. I want to pin the bear, right? And the bear trainer's screaming loud, real loud. He's going, get off my bear. Get off my bear. What are you doing, boy? Don't you know nothing about it? the bear finally rolls over on his side and he starts getting up to his feet and dad's in the corner and he says, come here, come here, boy. I go, okay, well, what's wrong with that? And he goes, hell, you ain't here to beat the bear. He says, you can't beat a damn bear, ignorant. He sags me in and he comes in. He goes in. The bear grabs him. He slides around behind the bear. The bear flies and marries him over his back. And he gets in, the bear flits, shoots him into the ropes and drops down and, and gives him a little monkey, gives him a little uh, backdrop. And I'm watching. I'm like, wow, what the heck, man? You know, and, and then he comes back and he tags me in again. And he goes now see what you can do I was like well I'll be darn man it just really it almost humiliated me you know because then the bear guy after the whole deal's over he goes boy he goes nobody's ever knocked my bear down like that he says nobody takes a bear down on his back like that and I said I was trying to beat him and he goes Son, you know he wanted. He was just like dad. You you can't beat a bear, boy. You it's no way you're gonna get that done. So that was my experience at wrestling a bear. Now, how old would your dad have been at the time of that story? I was probably 25, so he's probably uh, around 45, 46, somewhere in there
2: and that bear there that's not ginger
1: no oh no no this is not ginger in fact i believe i have looked on the internet since i started talking about roy's bear i think that's what the internet where i found on the internet that's the original bear they say this is the first bear ever taught to wrestle or something and that's darn sure not the case because ginger preceded that bear by 20 years a long long time or more maybe 25 30 years it was around 30 years prior to this bear that I was wrestling at that time. And let it be
2: said as well, as a matter of statement here, if you missed previously when we were talking about Ginger, this bear probably that you wrestled probably didn't have its teeth, probably didn't have its claws, where Ginger had its teeth and had her claws.
1: Yes, and not only that, this bear didn't have teeth or claws, and this bear was probably 300 pounds smaller than Ginger. Ginger was a massive bear. Ginger was an 800-pound bear, a monster bear. This bear... Was in the summertime, and uh, and the bear was really skinny. He was really thin because it was hot. And I don't think this trainer took care of his bear. Roy treated his bear wonderfully, like he was a child. He was a child because Roy got his bear when she was really young, and he made sure she always had a way to walk around and had room to roam a little bit. And he fed her great, and he watered her great, and he just he loved her. He loved her. I don't think this guy appreciated his bear anywhere near as much as Roy and certainly didn't take care of her as well as Roy took care of Ginger.
2: So thank you to Johnny Jones, one of my homeboys up in beautiful Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Next up is a question from Israel Napier of London, Kentucky, who asks, the angle between you and Ron Garvin, where they came in after your match with Terry Funk, injured your neck with a flying knee drop from the top rope, They brought Big Bad John as his bodyguard. What are your recollections on that, Stud?
1: That is a good question. I know that back in the day when Terry was champion, I was wrestling and had wrestled Terry quite a bit in St. Louis in the early 70s. We knew each other from having wrestled, and he knew that I was pretty darn good. And he was afraid, I think he was really afraid that I was gonna beat him for the world title. And his brother, Dory Jr., who was already former world champion, they did everything they could to knock me out of that title shot. First of all, they they made out, Jr. had them make a rule that I had to come and wrestle Jr. in Amarillo, Texas. And if I beat him in Amarillo, I got the title shot with Terry. Well, that was a ridiculous. You don't beat the funks in Amarillo. It's really tough to win in Amarillo against one of the funks. I was able to go and beat Junior and Amarillo and come back and wrestle Terry for the championship. Terry then, at two weeks before the championship, started where it was. He was spending money to get these guys to hurt me prior to the match. And he had offered some money, I guess, to Garvin was one of those guys. And so I, they, they couldn't stop me from the world title match. Terry and I wrestled a one-hour world championship draw in Knoxville, Tennessee, in one of the biggest crowds ever to see a wrestling match in the Coliseum in Knoxville. And during that match, we wrestled the draw. At the end of the match, I wanted to wrestle five extra minutes. And me and Terry got into it before they rang the bell. There was no bell rung. We got into it a, a fight before he even committed to a five-minute. And Ronnie Garvin came down to the ring Terry suplexed me, and Ronnie Garvin jumped off the top rope in my throat. I still have a problem on the left side of my larynx and my throat, where it bothers me. Once every three or four months, I get this little knot that comes up there, and that came from that jump off the top rope in my throat. I thought he broke my neck, and I laid in the ring, and I think there's a... Was there a second part to that question that that someone else had asked that was
2: there exactly because there is a follow-up and where you ask these questions if you want to ask a question of the stud first of all you can go to the website tnstud.com find him there but also on Facebook, Stud, let's give a plug to the Facebook page, and then I'll ask the second part of the question. Okay. So on Facebook, your address is?
1: It is Ron Fuller
2: Welch. There you go. So find him at Ron Fuller Welch. And the I'm having trouble with my facts today, Stud. I don't know. I feel like I'm doing my daily show here. So, uh, So a response to your question here by someone else was, I was there for the match. Guy remembers I was probably 13 years old and can remember them carrying you, the stud, out on a stretcher to an ambulance. He said people all around him were crying.
1: Yeah. You know, that's. I thought that there was a second. second. Well, it was a response. It wasn't another question. It was a response. Well, you know, and that's what happened. Ronnie Garvin had jumped off the top rope. Terry's still in the ring and in my throat, and they leave the ring. And I'm I'm in no condition to get up. I really think my neck is broke. So I lay there, and they come and bring your stretcher, and they put me on the stretcher. They had called an ambulance, and the ambulance came to the back of the Coliseum. And the crowd, anticipating that they were going to carry me out the back of the Coliseum, there was a mass of people back there. And, and I'm told this, because I couldn't see any of this, but I had wrestlers that watched it. They said they'd never seen anything like it. The crowd, a lot of them, especially ringsiders that were on the bottom floor of the building, went to the back to be there when they were going to take me and put me in the ambulance and they couldn't get to the ambulance. There was such a crowd there and they passed me. I remember this. They passed me from level to level as a three tier building. They passed me from one level to the next level above into the fans and the fans passed me upward because people wouldn't leave the building. There were people still there and I remember people crying coming to me and touching me on the way out and tears. And so they passed me up three levels and took me out the front of the building onto the plaza and put me into a second ambulance. And it was... Pretty remarkable. I mean, the guys that watched it, the wrestlers that watched it said, Ron, I've never seen anything like that in all my years, the crowd being that into it.
2: Which is a great compliment to everybody involved.
1: Yeah, I spent three days in the hospital in traction, and I still have a throat problem. Every time I swallow and I get that little pain, I think of Ronnie Garvin. You know, that's a tremendous question right there. Now, you're not
2: going to name that your question of the day till you know the can't, third question. can not get, don't get out of here. You're getting out of here, Suffolk. <laughs> Again, hey,
1: I'm jumping up there because I liked that question. That was really good. But go right on. What is the third one?
2: The third one is from Damian Kidd in Elkmont, Alabama, who says, Did Roy ever get to see you wrestle? If so, what was Roy's reaction watching his grandbaby out there?
1: I don't think I told this story, you know, and and if I have, I I apologize. But this is a really good story because not only did Roy see my first match, but my grandmother and my great-grandmother saw my first match. And Dad and I wrestled Dick Dunn and Don Carson in Blyville, Arkansas and it was my very first match then roy came with them and drove them from yorkville which was probably 200 miles away to the to the east of Blaville, arkansas during the course of the match don carson got a hammerlock on me and had my arm up my back and my grandmother and my great-grandmother were sitting on the first row of ringside I don't know how they got to the first Royal Ringside, but Roy probably said, hey, you know, get a couple of tickets so they can get up there close. And Don Carson had a hammerlock on me, and he had that arm. He was cranking it up my back, and my two grandmothers are sitting there, and he starts talking to him, and he's saying, come on, Grandma, I'm going to break his arm. Look at this. Hear him screaming? I'm going to break his arm. Well, they got up stood up, you know, so he saw that L.S. is getting somewhere. He was enjoying it. So so he drug me away from the ropes because they came to ring right up to the edge of the ring. He drug me where they couldn't quite reach me. They were reaching in the ring like they were going to be able to pull me out of there. And he drug me away and he says, oh, grandmas, can't you get on in here because I want some of y'all too, right? He was working them big time. Finally, the police came and they took the two grandmas outside. I saw Roy walk past the ringside to go out there and explain to the police, hey, look, that's their grandson, and this is his first match. And I can imagine how Roy handled it. He probably said, you know, this is the, his first match, and, you know, they see he's getting hurt a little bit, and they got a little perturbed, and, you know, so finally the police will turn my grandma's loose. They wouldn't let him back on the first row. They put him back in the building, and Roy stood there with him, grabbed him probably by the dress, new coat, or whatever he had to, to keep them there at the front of the building. And that was the first time Roy ever saw me wrestle. And his reaction was to save his wife and his mother-in-law. And I don't know how much interest he had in what was going on in the ring, but that was a good question, too. Really, really good questions today.
2: When you look back on that, how lost were you in the ring when you first started? Because I hear guys talk about how when you're green, it's there's only one way to get that experience, and that's just to get in there and do it.
1: It's it. I've trained for it all my life, and I knew how to wrestle. I knew how to shoot. I had some wrestling training, so you know, I, it wasn't like I was in there and had no idea what to do. And I was probably more prepared, more equipped than most people. I was in a tag match with one of the best, my dad. I was wrestling against two of the best, Dick Dunn and Don Carson. And, you know, it was still very, very difficult. And what you get is those monster butterflies in your stomach before you go out there. It's like, gosh, almighty, I can't, can't take it. You know, am I going to be able just to get out there without vomiting or something? So it's, it's really, really difficult. It's an awkward experience, but it's for anybody that wants to be a wrestler. It's a wonderful experience to get in that ring for the first time. Especially
2: in front of family members, too. I mean, it, it would have been probably much easier for you to do it somewhere in the dark of night and 600, 500 miles away from home, that sort of thing. But you're doing it right in front of family members.
1: Yeah, three of the closest family members you can have. Roy. I mean, I, I want to do great things. It's my granddad, it's his territory. And I'm just, I'm honored to be able to do it, to wrestle for him. So. It's a big event for me. It's an unforgettable event, and it becomes even more unforgettable because of what Carson did during the course of the match. So it's that's a great question. That's really a tough one this week, Tony. Um, well, I mean, about... you were
2: going to name the winner after question two. Stud I mean, yeah. was, was jumping the gun there.
1: Yeah, I was. I was. I mean, I thought that second question was fabulous, but the third one is tremendous, too. I'm going to have to go with number two. I'm going to have to go with the gentleman to ask question number two. And I'd like to thank these people. You know, I have now, Tony, I, when we started this process, I had about a thousand friends on Facebook. I now have 9,000 friends on Facebook and counting. And if you would like to, I have two Facebook sites, in fact. Uh, one is the original site, Ron Fuller Welch. And if you want to friend me on there, you can ask me these questions about wrestling. Every once in a while, I've done it twice now. I have sent out that I waited to receive more questions and I had a great response on the second go round. I'm not taking any more questions right now because we haven't answered all of them that I have gotten, but I will send out again. Please friend me if you'd like to on Ron Fuller Welch or you can go Ron Fuller, Tennessee Stud. It's a second site and just like me there. And you can respond to me and you can send comments. I think that's a great platform, that Facebook, because you're so in touch with people and people can get in touch with you. I would like to get as many friends as I can there. Please keep coming. Please tell your friends to like me and friend me on those two sites. And I will be asking for questions in the future.
2: And it's a terrific community, too, where folks go and they post what they like about each episode They ask you about certain stories that have come up. You're pretty interactive there as well. So it's a great time had by all. And the two sites are, again, one is Ron Fuller Welch. The other one is?
1: Ron Fuller, Tennessee Stud.
2: Ron Fuller, Tennessee Stud. And then the website is tnstud.com. Again, tnstud.com. And I want to thank the three folks, Johnny Jones out of Philly, Israel Napier, London, Kentucky, And Damian Kidd, Elkmont, Alabama. Three really great questions today that really enhanced today's episode here on your Studcast. And so, Stud, when we left, we were talking about some of your family members, and we're back in that late 50s time period. So, Stud, getting back into the meat of the matter here, we're in the late 50s. Your dad decides to sell Gulf Coast, even though it's one of the hottest territories in the world.
1: Why? That That's a good question, Tony. I mean, obviously, he's doing very well. I think Dad's M.O. was he has accomplished everything he wanted to. We've been there since 1954. It's 1959. He has drawn one crowd of almost 40,000 people. He has lit up the entire Gulf Coast. He has seen sellout after sellout after sellout. As time goes by and we spend more time and we travel across this country doing Dad's thing, I see what's happening. At that point, I don't, but when time develops, this thing goes down, uh, dad becomes really fabulous at building these territories, and he loses his interest. Once those sellouts are there, he's ready to go somewhere where it's dead and do it for somebody else and do it for himself. Just accomplish, make more fans. And I think that's why he was ready to go.
2: So that's an interesting thing. So it's almost too good for him. He has something inside of him where it's going too well. He wants to go somewhere else and blaze a new trail.
1: That's what he was all about. He was all about blazing a new trail. It's really funny that you asked me that question because, you know, this, this really pushes my mind here a little bit. You know, I think Dad kind of followed in Roy's footsteps. And when I really think about it, I think he was like a torch for the sport of wrestling. Wherever he went, and Roy was kind of the same way, wherever they went, they lit a fire. They lit a fire around the sport itself. And wherever they went, they lit a fire for wrestling. And and they kind of fanned the flames. They ignited it. What it did is that kind of thing, they ignited a fire in the hearts of millions of fans across America. And that fire still burns today, Tony. It's amazing. That's why we're here. I mean, that's why we are here today is because the fires that were lit by my grandfather and by my father and by all these wrestling promoters and all these great workers back in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s, It has left that fire burning in all these people's hearts for all these years. They have become such profound fans of the sport that even when it changes, and it has made tremendous change in the last 30 years, the sport has evolved into something totally different than what it was 30 years ago and they're still there those fans are still there that's why we're getting this tremendous response that i think we're getting is because these people have that fire in their hearts for that sport because they saw it done in such a way that it was so memorable to them it etched a spot in their hearts for this sport and i don't think it can be destroyed i don't think whatever WWE does and as badly as it's ever going to get it will never erase from all those millions and millions of fans that saw this thing done before he ever touched it that I'll never go away they will never die I think the torch is lit forever for those people
2: yeah that's an incredible thing because you know you think about one of the questions we had which was a 13 year old boy at ringside who remembered seeing you get carried out and people crying and you're recounting that story as long as shows like this one as long as shows like Austin Idol who you were talking about before and the work of Brian Last and some of these other folks that are keeping these memories alive for future generations so they can know hey, what we see right now is not what this was. This used to be a deal that was alive and well. This used to be something worth investing your heart in, worth investing your mind in. Kind of like having a favorite team. I remember when I was a kid, Man, my favorite wrestlers were like my favorite team. I grew up in Bruno Martino territory, and I still remember as a young kid seeing him get uh, double-crossed by Larry Zabisco and being on the back porch of my two older brothers, and one of them's got tears in his eyes. Today's product going to do that to you, Ron. It's not going to do that to you. But you know what? We still have our memories. They can't take that
1: away from us. That's right, and that, that's why I think Tony, what we do here in this program is so unique from even other wrestling podcasts and what they do. We do something here to take people back and to touch that fire in them again, to light that torch a little bit again for that feeling that they had when it was the great days and when guys were really legit and when people were shooters and all that may be gone, but it will never be forgotten.
2: Ron Fuller Welch, again, is how you connect with the Stud over on Facebook. The website is tnstud.com. Stud, we're about out of time here. We've gone another Broadway, man. It's been an incredible program. Is there anything else you'd care to add here on the way out? It's been terrific spending time with you.
1: I want to go back to the fans. I mean, this is all fan-based, every bit of it. I wouldn't be here. You wouldn't be here. We... I would not have had the success I've had in my lifetime. They never let go. That's why this thing that we just went through here just a second ago about lighting the torch, they never let go. And that is so, so humbling to me that people still remember and that they still care and that they still have the desire for the product that they used to have and they have the respect. All those things that we tried to accomplish when we were wrestlers and you went to that ring every night, giving it your all, and it was all based on fans. And I cannot thank these fans enough. I just am humbled by the response, Tony. It's unbelievable. We are fast becoming one of the best podcast in America. And we're eight weeks in. It's pretty amazing what's happening here. And I just, I can't thank fans enough. I'm humbled by it. It's a God-given talent to me. And I thank the good Lord for having put me where he put me when he did as a kid. I'm going to do everything I can to give myself back again to the fans. It's been 30 years since I've been relevant. I want to become relevant again, and I want to do it because of the fans. And I I just God bless everyone for your interest and your kind comments and for following us.
2: Well, let me say this to you. It's not been 30 years since you've been relevant. Stud, you've always been relevant. It's just a matter of you making the decision, as you said on a previous A stud cast, you should have done this 30 years ago, come out and tell your story. But now that you've decided to come out from the shadows, it's 93 years, it's four generations. You just heard the stud say the torch is lit. The torch is lit. The torch is not going out. And so on that, I'm going to bring this one to a close. It's time to let my main man, David, bring you home. And thank you for joining us for another award-winning, action-packed edition here. Tony Basilio for the great Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud himself, wishing you a great day. Thanks for being there, and peace from the stud cast.
0: Thanks for joining us today for this historic stud cast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee stud. What? This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains. This studcast is distributed by Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network.